Mutability. Welcome to Nature's Lead. This is a podcast available at naturesleadcom that both examines and inspires a certain approach towards life that is based both on personal philosophies and on the writings of people such as Emerson and Thoreau. Please send any feedback to info at naturesleadcom or drop a comment onto either the blog or onto iTunes. This is Series 2, Episode 33, Title... Economic Individualism Welcome to all of you. I hope all is going well. In this episode, I talk about our personal economies, and I read from Emerson for some guidance and inspiration. So we'll get to that in a second, but first, today's random window. I was lying in bed the other evening, which is right near the window. The sky was still visible, and there were two layers of clouds, each going opposite ways. There were the bulky, wet, cumulus clouds floating by low, and in between them I could see the higher, washboard blanket being pulled across the sky for a quiet, warm night. Every once in a while, I could look up at a show like that, and it lifts me up out of myself. There's a heightened emotional understanding and longing. What is that? What is that feeling? Is it just me? Just us? Just people romanticizing the view? Or is there something intrinsically crucial, noble, grand about it? Does nature know? Does nature know what it's doing? And these moments are when a culmination of efforts comes together as a grand crescendo of the skies? When the largest tree around catches the sun at dusk just right, so as to stop a well-suited corporate drone in his tracks. Is this the 30-year orchestration of natural genius? I don't know if it is, but I do know that it feels like it is. So therefore, it is. On to the main topic, economic individualism. This title sounds like a treatise from a financial analyst, However, if you are familiar with Emerson and Thoreau, then the title is a bit more alluring. I want to start off with a wonderful quote from Emerson. It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. Now let me turn to a riveting topic, economics. <laughs> Economies are based on what people will pay for things. If nobody will buy stock in IBM for more than $5 a share, and today it's at $40 a share on the stock exchange, eventually that price will work its way down to 5 as the sellers will capitulate over time. So in the end, the buyer is the one with the power. Of course, if the majority of buyers decide to buy at a higher price, like 10, then any single buyer who wanted to wait until it got to 5 may be left in the cold. But the reason I review this construct, which was already perfectly clear to most, is because I want to emphasize that we each have our own economy that is a drastic departure from the way we are taught to put value on things and the way in which we are taught how to own things. The value of things to you has to be judged subjectively. 
If you have a rock that means something to you, then that rock has value, period. Too often, we value things higher just because they are important to society. And I'm mostly talking about material things. This is an issue I've already discussed in other areas, but here I'm talking about tangible items. For instance, if you have a chance to buy a beautiful clock for five bucks that usually costs $50, yet you have no need for a clock, that purchase opportunity and item has no value for you. Unless you're in the business of reselling things, you're placing value on something based on society's economy. The economy may tell you something is of great value, but if you have no personal use for it, your personal economy trumps the enveloping country's economy. You are first and foremost you. The world exists from your spirit outward in concentric, enveloping circles. You are at the center of everything. Everything emanates outwards from your mind and spirit. Therefore, when it comes to placing value on things, your feelings and beliefs are etched in stone, whereas societies are drawn in water. And just an aside, but I can't say drawn in water without mentioning John Keats's beautiful and sad phrase he wanted on his tombstone. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. Actually, in my next open valley, I'll probably describe my eventful experience when visiting his grave in Rome. But back to these dueling economies. Society contains only a little bit of you. Society as a whole is a watered-down composite of all of us. So when it places a value on something, it represents that megalith composite first, and you last. I, therefore, choose to return the favor. I judge everything by my standard, with my ruler, with my calculator using my math. I decide where the decimal point belongs. I decide the definition of subtraction and addition. I manipulate the trends in fashion, in car styles, in popular trees for the home, in floor styles, in electronic gadgets. There is a whole economy brimming and bustling just inside my borders, and it is only through this economy's scrutiny by which an item may transition into my life. And when I now think of Keats and his grave, we die alone. Society is not with us. Society absorbs our contribution and adapts to our loss. Now, I don't want to belittle the magnitude and beauty of society. Society can be a wonderful thing where we all come together and thrive as a multifaceted organism way out here in the middle of nowhere in the universe amongst a cluster of wayward dust. But our interaction with this miracle, our accepting of its intricacies as opportunity, our understanding of its necessary evils, all of this must come after our own personal economy has flourished, after our own value set of goods and, and their prices have been deciphered, after our own personal society filled with the citizens of emotions, beliefs, and intelligence has developed the strength to stand alone. And now we come to the real question of the day. How much of your stuff is you? And how much is society? That's a tough one. Everything we have always has some aspects of society to it. We can't escape that, unless everything you own is of raw nature. 
your chair a rock, your radio some breeze-strewn branches singing at dusk, your television a large, playful meadow which you monitor from an overlook above. Okay, okay, wait a minute. I'm getting pulled away into a whole other life I don't have right now. With the acquisition of objects, you want to make sure that they are you. Otherwise, they enter as enemies, and you slave to serve them. Society doesn't put a value on an item's burden. That payment is yours to withstand, and society has no sympathy or any remedy. You must take care of that item through maintenance, cleaning, etc. You must always provide a place for that item. You must protect that item. You must justify that item to friends and family. And maybe worst of all, you must use that item enough to justify its initial acquisition. All of this feeds into the logistics of your life. Objects take away time from you every day like the rolling numbers on a gas pump. You need to eliminate logistics by eliminating unessential stuff and attachments. Adding an item to your life does not end in the item itself. You must take into account all the logistics of support that item will require. How many hours of your life will that item take away from you? And is the item worth losing those hours? Now let me insert a bit of a reality grounding when it comes to the host. As I always say, I'm no saint. I don't perfectly walk the talk, so to speak. Remember that I'm talking about ideas, different ways to look at things in our lives. I'm not living in a cave in the Rockies. I'm filled with material goods. I am, unfortunately, a healthy consumer. But I do choose things carefully, and I'm not greatly swayed by trends. This podcast is always about philosophical approaches to life and not meant to be a heavy-handed, actionable catalog. I live in this world and must work with it and within it. But ever since I was a little boy, deep behind these walls of my personal internal society, I've tried to sustain a sovereign mind and spirit, prospering in an excited storm of flesh and air. But back to that new shiny item you want to buy. <laughs> Perhaps it's an elite item. Perhaps it costs more than anyone you know would find justifiable. However, if your economy has judged that item to be essential, an item rendered invaluable, then the price the external enveloping economy has placed on that item is immaterial. This is the opposite of my clock example where a great monetary deal for something that is not essential to you is a burden. The clock is using you at that point. The clock owns you until you can find another poor soul to slip beneath the clock's thumb in your place. But I don't want to harp on the negative. This idea is beautiful. It's liberating. The idea here is that when the world and its objects are viewed through the concrete filter of your own economy, choices become clear. All of a sudden, decisions aren't as difficult. And the whole world opens up as only that which has truth within your walls becomes viable. The whole world is newly evaluated, since the old numbers, the learned numbers, have been discarded. Everything seems fresh. Now this line of thought has to run directly into the concept of ownership. What does it mean to own something? Does something have less value to you if you don't officially own it? 
the sky and its turbulent mixture of daily wind and water and nightly moons and stars are worth vastly more to me than all my gadgets and clothes and car. It's somewhat more concrete than the other stuff, yet it's all the other stuff that I own. What glory, therefore, is in ownership? I want to read an excerpt from Emerson's work entitled Nature, something I've read from before, but I'm repeating some of these lines because I'm using them for a different point this time. The stars awaken a certain reverence, because though always present, they are inaccessible. But all natural objects make a kindred impression when the mind is open to their influence. Nature never wears a mean appearance. Neither does the wisest man extort her secret and lose his curiosity by finding out all her perfection. Nature never became a toy to a wise spirit. The flowers, the animals, the mountains reflected the wisdom of his best hour as much as they had delighted the simplicity of his childhood. When we speak of nature in this manner, we have a distinct but most poetical sense in the mind. We mean the integrity of impression made by manifold natural objects. It is this which distinguishes the stick of timber of the woodcutter from the tree of the poet. The charming landscape which I saw this morning is indubitably made up of some twenty or thirty farms. Miller owns this field, Locke that, and Manning the woodland beyond. But none of them owns the landscape. There is a property in the horizon which no man has but he whose eye can integrate all the parts, that is, the poet. This is the best part of these men's farms. Yet to this their warranty deeds give no title. To speak truly, few adult persons can see nature. Most persons do not see the sun. At least they have a very superficial scene. The sun illuminates only the eye of the man, but shines into the eye and the heart of the child. The lover of nature is he whose inward and outward senses are still truly adjusted to each other, who has retained the spirit of infancy even into the era of manhood. I love that. The spirit of infancy. That's uplifting. Inward and outward senses, he says. Just perfect. In this episode, I'm talking about expanding and empowering those inward-focused senses. Senses that are vastly ignored and dummied down these days. So ownership is merely a civilization's necessity. The borders of farms exist, so the commerce of farmers is manageable. The borders have nothing to do with the scenery they divide, yet the scenery and landscape product might be the most valuable commodity ever to come from those farms. But maybe the land has to be divided up and defined in that manner, or else people couldn't work efficiently on one area and produce food for the community and their family. But what about Native Americans? They found it confusing that Americans were so focused on owning land. The land wasn't something to own. It was like trying to own the air or a piece of the sky. A society that stays in one place 
a society where cities are built and plots of land are allocated to individuals and families, a society where each individual is responsible for his or her own life. It is within this type of society that the concept of ownership is crucial to one's identity. If you're in a society like the Native Americans were, where group movement was common, where individual identity and success was intricately intertwined with group identity and success, where much of your work was contributory to the group as a whole, then ownership becomes an abstract concept that doesn't affect daily life or daily desires. I often ask myself this question. How much of my life is driven by the desire for products? With some things, it's hard to quantify. Here's a case study, so to speak. If I want an MP3 player because I want to listen to music as I hike, does that mean that that, that falls under the category of legitimate or driven by the desire for products? My initial reaction would be, no, that's perfectly legitimate. The MP3 player is a, ne a necessary utility. It has a legitimate use in my life. But let's dive a bit deeper, and this is where the layers of society and a life blitzed by consumerism become complicated. Why do I need to listen to music while I hike? Why can't I enjoy the sound of the trees, the birds? Why can't I enjoy the padding of my feet over the dirt, leaves, and twigs of a healthy forest trail? Is the reason because I've seen the fit confident, striding model in advertisements, and it's made out to be a beautiful, cool thing? Is the reason because I've seen others do it, and they are like a living advertisement for that type of experience? It just looks so cool, right? So sublime. Okay, it's not legitimate. It's driven by my underlying consumer influences. But wait, what if the music is classical music that complements the scenery and helps to heighten my experience of and my focus on the natural world? Without the music, I reflect too often on work and the trivial problems of daily civilized life. Okay, we're back to legitimate. So why do this? Why dive into this and go back and forth on this example? I want to help you visualize the gray I've spoken of before. I believe in the gray. This isn't black and white as to what we should be consuming and what we should be rejecting. As I've said before, I have to live in this world, and I've bought into the society I live in. I don't want masses of people or the government to change the way they're doing things. They all are a natural incarnation on this long historical path we're heading down. My goal is to decipher the gray, decipher me out of the group morass. So the better I see the gray for what it is in the question of listening to music on a hike or any other question, the better I'm going to make choices that are true to my spirit, true to the clean me. Incidentally, what's the answer to the MP3 player question? It's easy. Don't get it. If I couldn't walk on a path in nature without being mentally pulled back to daily strife, then shame on me. I shouldn't hide it with my music like a drug. I should look to solve the problem. That's a signal that maybe I should be doing something with my life that is more aligned with me and isn't haunting me in my personal time. If I'm alone with myself and society is poisoning that innocence with stress, 
then I need to take ownership of who I am and what I'm doing. One more comment about that passage from Emerson, and then I'll get out of your hair. Let me reread this one line. It sums everything up that I'm talking about. It is this which distinguishes the stick of timber of the woodcutter from the tree of the poet. That's a great quote. This is truly about maintaining your independence amidst the collective thought that surrounds you. If everyone around you sees that object as lumber, but a tree with the thick and dark colors of an aged forest pours onto the lens of your eye, then a tree it shall ever be. For you have the power of economic individualism. That brings us to a close. So until next time, I wish you well, and don't forget to follow nature's lead.